Luke chapter 7. It's been a little while since we left off at the end of Luke chapter 6. And so we will be there this evening. We do have some handouts. I think there's just a few available still at the front. If you'd like to come and get one, you can. Uh, And I know thank you to all those who helped pass those out. When I came back in from getting my kids where they needed to go, I saw that they were already all over the place. So thank you to all those uh, who were involved in helping to get those around. Let me give you just a few things in way of uh, housekeeping before we jump jump into the text tonight. Just a reminder about the uh, Friday night event for all ladies. You don't have to sign up. You can just show up the gathering, which will be just a worship night, that uh, a chance for ladies to come together, spend time in worship and in fellowship, and that's going to be this Friday night. And so just want to invite you to that uh, again. And so you'll see the, the times for those escape me right now, but that is on our website. And uh, it's also on everything we've been handing out, bulletins and otherwise, uh, for the last couple weeks. So we're excited about that. I know there's some women's Bible studies gearing up. Uh, men, we're going to have some stuff coming up soon. Don't worry, we're working on that. Sunday, we're going to start letting you know a few details about some of that coming up. Uh, but I think you'll be excited about that too. But ladies, just a reminder about that. Also want to let you know that in the month of February, uh, in here, we're going to pivot just because Luke is a long book and we're kind of coming in and out of it. So we don't kind of, you know, run too hard and kind of get weary. Uh, We will pivot out of the book of Luke in the month of February for a series that I'm calling Hope in Dark Places. And what that series will be doing is taking chapters of scripture that historically have cause the most nervousness, the most fear, the most despair in the life of believers and trying to speak on what these chapters truly convey and what their purpose is. So when you come to chapters like Hebrews chapter 6 and Romans chapter 9 and Hebrews chapter 10 and others, the goal of this will be, will be to, to take the warnings that are there, but also to realize these passages in their context for what they're saying and to be wary of some ways that often these passages are misinterpreted. So I want to invite you to be here uh, for February's series, Hope in Dark Places. It, uh, I think, is going to be a good time uh, for each one of us, finding assurance in passages that scare Christians the most. So we're going to be in a passage of Scripture tonight in Luke chapter 7, where we will be walking through uh, a few places where Jesus walked. He is back around the Sea of Galilee again. And if you look here on the map, you will see that in the upper left corner of the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Kinneret, the Sea of Tiberias, depending on who's talking about it, you've got Capernaum, which is where we will start tonight. And then we'll conclude with a story that happens in a little town called Nain uh, that is back off of the coast. If you want to see Uh, a non, you know, this map's not in the back of your Bible. The other ones are. Uh, If you've got a map of Galilee or otherwise, I remember Josh McDowell saying when he got saved, he had so much faith in the Bible, he even believed the maps were inspired. And so uh, that's a, that's a good place to be. But here's a, here's a picture of what Capernaum uh, looks like now. Obviously you've got the Mount of Beatitudes, which doesn't look very much like a mount from this perspective looking down, uh, but also you've got Capernaum there on the coast. And even the synagogue that is talked about tonight uh, is more than likely what is built under this. These ruins are from a later time period. I think they're several hundred years older, uh, but originally this would have been the foundation by which the other synagogue would have stood uh, that is discussed tonight. There's even an inscription in another synagogue in the area for those who... uh, 
who helped to make sure that that synagogue got created. See, Baptists didn't invent that. You know, when you, some of you may have been involved in places before that when you got a new sanctuary or you did this or that, or together we build this or that, you put your name on the side of the pew or your name went on a plaque somewhere. Y'all know what I'm talking about? So we paid for this one or thanks to so-and-so who gave this much or they were a gold level doing this or that. Even all the way back to the ancient world, there were inscriptions that showed this synagogue exists because of the gift of so-and-so who made this possible. So the thanks would have probably, more than likely, there would have been something like this in the synagogue that is discussed tonight uh, in Capernaum that may have had the name of the, uh, uh, the centurion who we, we come to see here in this passage. My Hebrew's a little rusty, but uh, y'all can ask Pastor Brandon later what that says, and he'll, <laughs> he'll read it for you. And then lastly, there's a, uh, here's a picture of just, so how many of y'all know some Civil War reenactors? Anybody got any friends that do that? Yeah, so there's some Civil War reenactors around. I, I've never been to see one, but that's, the Civil War fascinates me. Uh, but imagine being a Roman soldier reenactor. That's what, this is actually not on the set of the movie. Uh, there are people in this part of the world that are in reenactment groups that reenact Roman military stuff. And it ain't because great, great grandpappy did it. I mean, you got to reach way, way back, don't you? And so uh, you've got this pictured here to give you some idea of a little bit of what this may have looked like. We're going to take this passage in two passages tonight. And we're going to read the first one here uh, in Luke chapter 7 verses 1 through 10. We'll say a word of prayer and we'll dive right in, all right? Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. After Jesus had finished all his sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant and when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He's worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he's the one who built us our synagogue. Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Let's pray together. Father, tonight, will you help us to look full into the wonderful face of the Lord Jesus and to find the things of earth growing strangely dim in light of his, in light of your glory and grace. In the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. The writer of the Holman Commentary on the book of Luke is a guy named Trent Butler, and he talks, of, he talks about uh, a circumstance with his son. You know, um, some of you who are parents of adult kids, uh, I, I don't have adult kids yet, but I think it's probably, you never stop looking at your own children through a different lens, no matter how old they get, right? 
uh, because there's just too much, you, you got too much dirt on them, right? You just know too much about, you know, different things, just like my parents do for me. They know more mistakes that I made than, than anybody else knows. But he talked about how, uh, as a, a, this, this man, Trent Butler, the writer of the commentary on Luke, he says this, my son rashly answered an ad seeking a computer troubleshooter for a commercial real estate firm. He carefully filled out their questionnaire and sent his resume. And I, as his loving father, laughed the effort off. How could a young person who's never had a full-time job, never had any kind of computer training of any kind, become the major computer person for a sophisticated urban real estate firm? But the amazing result was that my son got the job and has been widely praised by his employer. Similarly, Jesus called people to follow and become his disciples, people who had no qualifications for the job. Many of these people were outsiders, snubbed and ostracized by society's leaders. Criticism faced Jesus at every stop. Compassion, healing, and a call to discipleship were his responses. And the church must hear the message of Luke 7. As we call out leaders and invite people to follow Jesus, we too often check their resume before we check their hearts. Luke chapter 7 is a passage of Scripture rich with people who perhaps would not be qualified by the resume uh, onlookers of the day to come to Jesus. And yet, in Luke's gospel especially and throughout the gospels, we see that Jesus' heart is for those who it doesn't make sense uh, for, uh, for them to come to him, that he has a heart after the, the lost and the outcast and the downtrodden. And we see that here in the passage uh, tonight. I've got your handout um, there, and, and if you want to start walking right down it tonight, we can do that. And the first point that I've got for you here this evening is this, Jesus is involved and gets involved when people care for other people, especially when it doesn't make sense. Jesus is involved and gets involved when people care for other people, especially when it doesn't make sense. Imagine how odd it must have been in those days for a Roman centurion in Capernaum to have the Jewish elders come to Jesus on his behalf, claiming how worthy he is. I bet there weren't too many Roman centurions who could claim that in that day and time. But the people cared for the centurion. The centurion cared for those people, that he didn't treat the people as subjects but instead had given a great deal and made uh, some headway to making sure that they could have a synagogue, so much so that these Romans and these Jews were attached to one another in a way that much of the rest of the society was not. You know, when you go on down the page, you'll see, uh, you know, various ways at the same time that you see not only Jews and Gentiles, but you come to this small town of Nain where people uh, do not know each other, you know, too well yet, and you've got circumstances there. All throughout these passages, whether it's a Roman and a Jew, a master and a servant, you've got these connections across ways where people are attached to one another relationally that they care about one another. Now, there's actually two parallel passages, uh, I believe, to the story that we see here tonight in Luke chapter 7. If, you, if you're taking notes or if you just want to know, Matthew chapter 8 gives the, what most agree to be the same account of what happens. And then another passage that takes place is in John 4. 
And the jury is out a little bit about whether or not what's described in John 4 is the same as what is described here in Luke chapter 7. Now, I'll go ahead and show you the cards in my hand. I believe that John 4 is the same passage with what, or is, is telling the same, chronicling the same story of what happens here. Uh, now, you can disagree with me, you're certainly free to, and I might get to heaven and find out I'm wrong, but uh, that is what I believe, and I'm not alone. Now, John 4 has a number of differences with what we see in Matthew 8 and Luke 7, none of them terribly, you know, uh, saying that it couldn't possibly be the same connection. It's very easy to just say, well, there's details given in one that aren't given in the other. But here's what we see in John chapter 4. The person that described is not used with the term slave or servant, but instead son. And you say, well... Jonathan, the story of the prodigal son is all about whether the son, when he goes back home, is going to be a servant or a son. Those two words aren't interchangeable with one another, and I would agree with you. Even in the Luke account, there's actually two words that are used interchangeably to describe this person. One of them is doulos. You might have heard that word before if, uh, if you've been in church for a little while, the word for bondservant. And so he's described as a servant, but also another word is used, and it's the word pice the Greek word for child. And so you've got servant slash child, depending on the verse in Luke's account. In John's account, the word huios, a Greek word meaning son, is used. Now, I say all that not to spend too much time and lose you in these kind of rabbit trails, but I think it's, it's possible for us to see what is given in the gospel of Luke, especially with the phrase where Luke says, because he was highly valued. He was highly valued by him. Now, when we come to thinking about the relationship between masters and servants, it would be hard for us to see the term highly valued in any other way except to maybe think about, well, that just means it costs a lot of money to replace him. But this being a child, by the wording that's used, and knowing the practices of the ancient world in the context of this passage, Many believe, and I'm one of them, that more than likely this servant was so special to this centurion that he was in the midst of or had previously adopted this child as his own. So you have this balance of servant and child. Now, I may be wrong, as I said, but y'all go with me far enough at least to see the relationships that are described in this passage break the barriers of normal social mores at the time that slaves and their masters aren't supposed to be, you know, close with one another, that, you know, Jews and Gentiles, especially Romans, are not supposed to be close to one another. But yet, God is going to do some incredible work in this passage because of compassion, because of care, because of relationships that exist. Jesus is involved and gets involved when people care for other people, especially when it doesn't make sense. I'll give you a little letter A under there to sort of go underneath. I don't know if it's proper to have an A without a B, but y'all just humor me tonight. When we care for others in this way, they start to look a lot more like us. When we care for others in this way, they start to look a lot more like us. Any of y'all ever read All Quiet on the Western Front in high school? A book that was banned in Hitler's Germany before the Second World War. Because the thing that it did was take you inside the mind of someone as a World War I soldier who was fighting for the French 
And all of a sudden, being engaged in combat, it began to humanize and and have him think of the fact that the person on the other side of the battle line had a wife and had kids and had a life and a past just like he did. And there's this humanizing of the enemy that comes out of that book that Adolf Hitler said, I don't want that book in my country, to think about the enemy with any kind of humanity at all. The Roman centurion has been kind to the people that he is involved in, in, you know, being in that area and his jurisdiction in that area. And in that way, the Jewish people come up to Jesus and they say, he is worthy of you to do this for him. They pleaded with him, verse 4, earnestly saying, he's worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation and he's the one who built us our synagogue. He's worthy for you to do this to him. Now, more on that phrase in just a moment. But they're, they're vouching for this Roman… I, we can't spend long enough on this to say how incredibly strange this is. Not only just regular Jewish people, but the elders saying, Jesus, really, this guy deserves your mercy. You know, when we begin to care about people, they start to look a whole lot more like us. I can't tell you how many times I've had folks come up to me through the years, and this is something how the conversation goes. You know, we've got these neighbors, and, they're, and they'll, they'll fill in, you know, they belong to this other religion. You know, they might be Muslim, they might be Mormon, they might be whatever they are. And then they'll, they'll sort of describe a little bit, been trying to sort of see how we can, we can witness to these folks. And then they make this statement. But they're the nicest people. (laughs) One of the biggest challenges for us is to realize that those who are in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our our places of business and, and just grocery store, wherever you want to name, that they're people created in God's image that we're called to love. And it's only in caring for them that we're going to see great work being done. I have yet to have anybody come up to me to say, you know what, I was lost until that day that so-and-so shared his, you know, his, his hardcore political opinions with me. That way I knew exactly where he stood. I've never known one person. Maybe there's somebody, I haven't met them yet, who's come to Christ for that. When somebody said, well, here's, what, you know, here's the rules that I keep and the rules that you don't keep, I haven't known anybody to come to faith yet through that. I've known some folks to come to faith through various means and ways and things you wouldn't expect. I remember hearing a pastor one time tell a story about a man in his church who had just gotten saved and went out and wanted to witness to the man that was working with him. They'd both you know, been buddies doing some stuff that they shouldn't have been doing. And he said, I'm going to witness to him, pastor, and I'll come back and tell you about it next week. And the pastor said, well, okay, that sounds good. And he came back and he said, well, pastor, I went and witnessed to him, but it went different than I thought it was. The pastor said, okay, well, tell me a little bit about it. And he said, well, I uh, was trying to witness to him and just wasn't getting anywhere. And finally, I took out my lighter that I had in my pocket and I held it under his hand. And I said, hell is hot. You know, don't you know this? And the pastor said, whoa, 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 whoa. That's, That's not how we share Christ with one another. He said, no, pastor, that was the moment he decided to place faith in Jesus when I finally put, so I'm not recommending that tonight, okay? But God can redeem and use some things that are just not quite what they should be. But if you don't know where to start with the people that God's placed in your life around you, that live around you, that are in your family, that are in your friend circle, that are, you know, wherever it is, you don't know where to start, start with caring about people. Now, let me say it this way, start with caring for people. We're really good at caring about people, aren't we? Oh, you know, they're just on my heart. I just, you know, but, but 
How can you show that you care about somebody? How can you seek to intentionally care for someone? Start with compassion and see what Jesus can do in the midst of that. That's what happens in this passage. Great things are already going on by the time Jesus even makes it into the story this evening. When we care for others in this way, they start to look a lot more like us. Because what happens with all the people that, when we start to get these viewpoints where we say, oh, the world's just so messed up and these people around me are just, this day and age, they just, we get into all that. It's because we've got so much distance from people that we're not able to see them the way that, even close to the way that God sees them. And so if you don't know where else to start, can you start with compassion? Can you start with caring about and for folks? May it be true in my heart, my life as well. The thir- the, oh, I guess it's point number two, the third thing, the third blank, but the second point, despite what the Jewish elders say and despite whatever else we might do, none of us are worthy to receive anything from Jesus. These Jewish leaders go up to Jesus and they say, Jesus, this man's worthy of you to do this. And they don't really know what they're saying and they don't really know who they're talking to. But isn't it true that none of, us are, none of us are ever going to stand before Jesus and say, well, you know, I am worthy of this, and I am worthy of… No, we're not. The Bible says our righteousness is like filthy rags compared to the righteousness of God. None of us are worthy to receive anything from Jesus. And so what Jesus does in this passage is not because of the worthiness of this man. It's not because he spent X amount of money, uh, you know, putting the synagogue together. There was, well, if there was somebody that came up to Jesus and made this statement, well, you know, he, is, he has paid quite a bit to do. You know how much he's given and you know how much he's worth. You know how much political power he wields. None of that kind of statement makes it into the scripture if it ever occurred because that's not what mattered to Jesus. What made this man worthy wasn't anything about himself, but because of God's plan and God's honoring of the faith and the the compassion of those who were coming on his behalf, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he's worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. He's the one who built our synagogue. And Jesus went with him. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. The power of a centurion to know when I say something, it happens. Now, I'm a parent. I got four kids. I can't say that I would place ultimate faith in anything I say happening right away with my kids. I've taught in the public school system before. I can't say that I ever had a moment teaching to say, well, you know what? When I speak, they listen and they obey right away. I could never have that confidence coming to the Lord Jesus or anybody else. But the centurion knows not just about his own authority under the Roman uh, leadership, the Roman set of, of military practices, but he recognizes something that we must recognize. Number four, all authority belongs to Jesus. All authority belongs to Jesus. Jesus stands with the disciples at the mountain in Galilee in Matthew 28. He says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples all nations. All authority. That there is nothing that Jesus can't do. 
I remember hearing a pastor tell one time about being on a mission trip out into somewhere in, in Southeast Asia where there had not been a great gospel witness with a young group of pastors who were new to the faith, still learning about the Bible. And you have those kind of, some of you might've been involved in something like that before where Southeast Asia, you know, India, other places, you go and you, you teach on the Bible all day long and you just, you just don't, you don't stop. You just keep going all the way through everything. And uh, you just might go through a whole book of the Bible. You might go all the way through the New Testament. But anyway, they were walking through the passage of Scripture where Jesus calms the storm. And so Jesus calmed the storm. And the pastor is used to teaching it the way that an American pastor might teach that passage. And he said, well, Jesus spoke to the wind and the waves and they stopped. And you know, for us, sometimes we face storms in our life. And God is the master over those storms in our life. And all of a sudden he noticed that these indigenous people were talking to one another and they were whispering in their own language. Finally, one of them raised their hand and they said, wait a moment. Did you say Jesus spoke to the wind and the waves and the storm and they stopped? And the pastor said, well, yes, yes, he did. And I think also in our life, we must remember that when we face storms and we face tumult, that God is, and they said, he spoke to the weather and the, and the sea and it stopped? Yes. Well, he must be very powerful indeed. The basic detail of that story that if we're not careful, we miss. All authority has been given to Jesus. Jesus has never met this servant, this child. Jesus does not have their blue cross, blue shield number to, uh, to sort of go into. He does not have their copay amount. He does not have their pr primary or secondary address, their cell phone number. Jesus does not know their address in terms of something being given to him in paper. He's never made, as far as we know, a personal one-on-one -on -one connection with this child. Jesus didn't have to be there. Jesus didn't have to have previous experience. Jesus didn't need any paperwork. All authority had been given to him in a moment to think him healed and he was healed. All of that, all authority has been given to Jesus. And so with the miraculousness of that, with that kind of miracle, Jesus also marvels at the man's faith. Verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. A couple points just even in this one verse. Number five, Luke continues to show us the amazement or the marveling when Jesus is involved. It's kind of neat that we're coming right out of the Christmas passages because you see Mary treasuring these things and you see her parents, uh, Jesus' parents, excuse me, uh, his parents marveling at what was done, marveling at what Simeon said, marveling at what the shepherds come in and claim uh, they have seen, marveling at the boy Jesus, 12 years old in the temple, speaking and all the people recognizing that there's incredible wisdom and there's marveling after marveling after marveling. Here we come to chapter seven and there's still marveling that's taking place. And Jesus is marveling, he's amazed at the words that come out of this man's mouth. Now, once again, I think I mentioned last time, marveling doesn't necessarily mean surprise. Doesn't mean Jesus is saying, wow, didn't expect that. That's, that's not what the word here means. But Jesus is taking in the moment to just recognize how powerful 
this man's faith and the work of God in his heart is. Some of you are getting excited about the football playoffs. I guess the college is done now, but the NFL is just gearing up. Some of you are are football fans. I know I've met a few people here. Uh, I don't know if anybody's a bigger Cowboys fan than Kip. If they are, you, I, I haven't met you yet. But, um, but, but I, I know from, from when I first started watching football that I can remember, the, the Super Bowls I first remember watching were those Dallas Cowboys uh, Super Bowls in the early 90s. Few, uh, a couple years back, Jimmy Johnson, the coach of that team, ended up being inducted into the Hall of Fame. And the way they end up telling you is somebody comes where you are and sort of tells you you're going to be in the Hall of Fame. And they kind of film the reaction of these guys just to see how it was. Well, it was neat when they came and told Jimmy Johnson because Jimmy Johnson was on a television set where his quarterback, Troy Aikman, was also up in a booth that was looking down on the events that were taking place. This is a picture from that moment. Jimmy Johnson was being told that he was going to make the Hall of Fame, but then they also began to show a camera to Troy Aikman because Troy Aikman was looking down at his coach and tears began to run down his face. He said no words and he made no real show of heavy emotion, but you could just see in his face that he was taking in something that he appreciated and was so thankful for from this coach that he loved and he felt like was his coach even after all these years and having other coaches, knowing he deserved that more than even the other people who were there knew that he deserved that. And Troy Aikman just sort of had this moment where he was, he was watching, he was marveling and taking joy in what was being given to Jimmy Johnson that day. I think something like that is what's going on here. Jesus is taking in the work of God in his own heart and in his own you know, vantage point to celebrate what God is doing. He's marveling. He's taking in and enjoying uh, what God has done in this man's life, the centurion. Luke shows us the amazement and the marveling when Jesus uh, is, is involved. Oh, number three, I think I skipped. Forgive me for that. And this is the other point here. Sometimes those far from Jesus put our faith to shame. And we need to beware of the complacency of familiarity with the Lord. Sometimes those far from Jesus put our faith to shame. What it must have been like for Jesus not only to experience the joy of what this man had done, but also to recognize that all of those who knew the words of the Old Testament by heart could not receive him as Savior in the way that this centurion so freely put faith in him. And I look at that, and it's easy for us on this side of the Gospels to look back and say, well, how in the world could they have missed that? I sure wouldn't do that. But then we recognize in our own heart and life, if we're not careful, our familiarity with the things of, of uh, the holy things of God, our, our sort of sense of, yeah, we're used to that, that can make us so complacent that we miss what God wants to do in our hearts and lives. And if we're not careful, all of a sudden, people who have just stepped in, are, 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 we're, we're, they're putting us to shame, saying, well, if y'all really believe this, shouldn't we be doing this or that? If we really believe this, shouldn't that do something in your heart and in your mind and in your life? The complacency of familiarity is a danger again and again in the Gospels. All right, let's go to the second passage. Verse 11, soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. 
As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. And then he came up and touched the buyer, and the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. To my knowledge, this is the only time that the town of Nain is mentioned in the Bible. It's the one, one moment in time where we see something happen there, the small town uh, where this takes place. If you're sort of looking at a cross-section from, from today, you can see a few points here you might recognize. Uh, Mount Tabor, that's the one that's not in Winston-Salem. Uh, you've got Endor. If you've got any Star Wars fans here, you might remember Endor was the little moon where the Ewoks lived. Well, Endor was also the place where Saul went to find a witch that could uh, raise Samuel up so he could talk to him. And that town is uh, remembered probably most famously for that. And then you've got Nain that's located here. If you want a little closer of a, of a shot here, you can see on the either, si- either side of the hill of Mora, you've got Shunem on one side and then Nain uh, on the other side. This is a picture of that area from 100 plus years ago. This is back in the very early 1900s. Even then, there was nothing remaining from the biblical times as far as they knew, but this gives a closer picture to what this may have looked like. The people in this funeral procession came out of a gate that more than likely bore a lot of resemblance to this gate, a small door where they're kind of bottlenecking out, out of the town, out of the village uh, to, to go out into the outer areas uh, for, uh, for burial. Um, you, you may remember that the bedrock in Israel is really high up, and so they do not bury their dead in the ground as we do, uh, but they tend to uh, put them in caves uh, or some, some place like that. That's what the Lord Jesus was laid uh, in a tomb in that way, and then after a time of deterioration, their bones are taken and put into an ossuary box and then placed back in a cave somewhere else, and so this would have been uh, the process then. You can see here a picture of a funeral procession from some time back in a close place of the world where uh, a body is carried out there on top of some sort of pallet uh, or open uh, vessel of some kind and, and carried out. This would have been the way in which this body was being led out of the village that we see. You know, I found it really interesting. I, I got a chance to, to, uh, to speak at, at um, John and Jane Patterson's uh, son's funeral Sunday night. I, I didn't really look ahead to see which passage we would be in uh, tonight, but it's this passage. Uh, that, that the, as I sort of thought through what, what to be a comfort to them, I couldn't help but think of this passage. You know, if we were to try to think of the people that Jesus raised from the dead, this would probably be the last one we'd think of for most folks. You know, you think of uh, Jesus, obviously the resurrection himself. Uh, we remember that. We think of John 11 where Lazarus is raised. We think of the little girl that Jesus says, Talitha kum, and, and you know, I say to you, little girl, arise. And maybe the last one we'd think of would be just this little, almost seemingly quick interaction that takes place. But to me, it's a really wonderful picture of Jesus' heart. Number six, sometimes at our most hopeless point is where we encounter Jesus. Sometimes at our most hopeless point 
is where we encounter Jesus. Aren't you thankful? He's not only Lord of the mountaintops, but sometimes in the deep valleys, uh, we, we meet him in ways that we never would otherwise. I think C.S. Lewis is the one that said, pain is the megaphone of the Lord. That sometimes we hear things walking through pain. We, we, we experience things about the Lord that we never could experience otherwise. Jesus comes up to this town and being led out in the midst of this procession is not only this, this funeral buyer with this body on top of it, but a, a man or a lady that Jesus recognizes as the only uh, or the, the mother of this only son who has now passed away. She was a widow, which means her husband had passed away as well. And so she is not only in a state of grief, but she's in a state of having no one to then care for her for the rest of her life. For the way that the setup was in the ancient world, this is a, a hopeless situation in many ways. We don't know the exact circumstances but, uh, of everything, but as she comes out, I imagine she was as grief-stricken as anybody else you could find uh, in the Gospels. And so just to mention quickly a few things about what we see in this passage that I think is really powerful is that as this man is being carried out, we find out a little bit of context, Jesus sees this woman and begins to speak to her. Now, all of us, when we go to a funeral, especially a tragic, you know, wasn't expected. I mean, sometimes we, we end up going to those funerals of folks that perhaps were in our family or loved ones, and we're, we're sad to lose them, but we recognize that they were 142, and it was time for them to go on and be with the Lord. And it's, it's not the same deal as when you've got folks who, you know, have, have, have lost their life and we didn't expect it. And so we walk into those tragic times. Y'all know what we're talking about? We walk into those hospital rooms and those funeral parlor, parlors, and what do we feel? We feel, I, I don't know what to say. If we're not careful, sometimes we just say nothing. And, and sometimes it's right to say nothing. Usually people in that moment don't need to be preached at. They just need somebody to care for them, tell them they love them, they're praying for them. They don't need you to give words of wisdom. They just want you to care about them. But in that moment, we sometimes struggle with what to say. Imagine at the point where the family is walking out of the funeral, the music's playing, and we're all headed in a solemn way. Imagine that being the moment that you said, I think I'll go up and have a conversation now. We wouldn't do that, would we? Imagine how solemn this procession was. At the time, there would even be professional mourners that were hired to wail and to weep all the way to the tomb. So this is a reverent moment in which Jesus comes up to this woman and probably stops the whole thing. How many of y'all in here had record players? Anybody have a record player at any point? Yeah? I'm seeing a good amount of folks. Y'all might not raise your hand, but I know you had a record player. Y'all remember the sound the record would make when you'd grab it real quick when it was running? You'd get that, you know, kind of, you know what I'm talking about? That was one of those moments all of a sudden here at this funeral. Jesus goes up to the woman, and this is what he says, do not weep. Now, to all those who heard that, they would think that's the most callous thing that anybody could ever say. But Jesus had the authority that other people didn't have, and he had a reason for saying what he was about to say. You know, one of the most marvelous passages in the Bible, John 11, I think it's verse 53, where it says, Jesus wept. At Lazarus' tomb, Jesus cried, even knowing that he was about to raise Lazarus in just a few short minutes, because he loved Lazarus. We get to see Jesus' grief and pain and empathy all there in one moment, just beautifully portrayed. Jesus is not afraid of weeping, but I think there's a way in which we see here that Jesus, number seven, has come to end our weeping. 
and he's taken it upon himself. One of these days, as the Bible says, he's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. And there will no longer be sickness and pain and death. There will no longer be sadness for the former things have passed away. There's coming a time where all those old things are going to be gone, that we're in the process of that. We're moving on that conveyor belt, so to speak, in that direction, that we are heading to that uh, final state. But Jesus has come to end our weeping. This great way that because of who Jesus is, that is, that is absolving, that is taking our tears away, that even on the moments when are, that are filled with tears for us, they're not the bitter tears of loss, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve of those who do have hope in Christ. So Jesus has come to draw back the bitterness and the pain of this world, and he's not only done that, he's taken it upon himself in the cross. I wonder what the tears of Gethsemane were like. And I don't know that there's a more moving picture in the New Testament for the heart of Jesus than what we see there. But we see so much of the fact that, that Jesus didn't just come to end things, but in God's righteousness, he was going to have to take our pain upon himself. We're running out of time, so let me get to these uh, last three here. Number eight, Jesus has deep compassion towards us. Jesus has deep compassion towards us. And don't skip over that too quickly. It's one of the most marvelous truths you could hold on to. Jesus has deep compassion for us. When the Lord saw her, verse 13, he had compassion on her. The Greek word is a word uh, called splachnon. It quite literally is the word for bowels. Now, you and I have never seen that in a Hallmark card. It doesn't translate too good. <laughs> but, for the, but for the idiom of ancient Greece, it was what was used to say something that is felt deep down in the deepest reaches of who we are. So Jesus didn't have token compassion for this woman. He doesn't have token surface-level compassion for us, but deep-rooted compassion. He had compassion on her, said to her, do not weep. And he came up and touched the buyer and the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up. This point was so good, I had to give it to you twice. Number nine, all authority belongs to Jesus, even death. Even death. Larry, I don't know what work had been done on this young man yet. I don't know what kind of or any, any kind of embalming or anything else. I don't know what medical impossibilities there were for him to walk up to this buyer and to say, young man, I say to you, arise. But any of you who've worked in the medical industry or otherwise, you know that there's more that's wrong with a human body that has ceased to live after a few minutes than simply they're deprived of a heartbeat and deprived of oxygen. Everything in that body begins to die and to, to decay. We're talking about a serious turnaround. That's why Lazarus, after being dead four days, is an incredible miracle because of all that medical science reveals of what takes place in that four days. But all authority has been given to Jesus, even over death. And then we see this wonderful phrase. Well, before we get that, let's get to a funny phrase first. Can we do that? I love this. Luke says the same thing that John says in John 11 when Lazarus is raises, uh, raises from the dead. The dead man set up. He doesn't call him by name. Even John doesn't call Lazarus by name. He just said the man who had died uh, got, came out. 
Even after all those years, he couldn't get past the fact that this is the guy who had been dead. Now, he didn't rise up. Sometimes with kids, you have to point out that doesn't mean he was a zombie. He's not still dead when he rose up. But Luke is saying, and John is saying, how incredible that this guy was dead. And then he woke up and he was alive and he was as good as new. And so you see that language, but then you see this beautiful phrase. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Jesus gave him to his mother. I don't know what the greatest gift she'd ever received before was, but I know what the greatest gift was in that moment and forevermore, her son. The last point, number 10, through Christ, God is in the restoration business for his children. God is in the restoration business for his children. You know, I don't know if there's anything harder than a funeral for a child. I don't, I don't imagine that there could be anything tougher as a parent. And so to be in that situation and to have what was the greatest loss restored to you in a moment is such a powerful picture. And I know ultimately for each one of us, that's the hope of heaven, isn't it? For those we lose in Christ, that that's not the end, that one of these days, Jesus is going to give them back to us. They'll be restored, never to be taken away again. And so the hope that is here for the widow in Nain is the same hope that's there for us, even if it's on the other side of glory, because the other side of glory is eternal. So for you tonight, for me, may we love people well and see what Jesus will do with that. May we see how that is the steering point to getting us towards the things that he would want to do May we recognize the authority of Jesus. May we be so thankful that at the most hopeless places, he can encounter us there. And all along the way, Jesus' authority over our life, our timeline, our circumstances wins out again and again and again, even through tough roads. And no matter what our road, Jesus Christ has taken on himself the weeping and the pain that we deserved. And in his conquering of death and sin and pain forever, He's in the restoration business for his children. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for your word, the hope of it, the richness of it. So, Lord, may we worship, may we respond as you lead. We thank you, Father. We love you. You're so good. May you go with us and lead us on. In Jesus' name, amen.